Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. You can't teach kindness. And at the end of the day, it's like a fundamental part of hospitality is a mindset that not only am I equipped to serve well, but I actually enjoy serving. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. I'm Josh Copeland. On today's show, we chat with Pauline Brown, the author of Aesthetic Intelligence and former chairman of LVMH North America, where she helped build some of the greatest brands in the world, including Louis Vuitton, Dom Perignon, and Tiffany's. Restaurateurs have long known that patrons are looking for more than food and beverage when they dine out. They're looking for an experience. Pauline Brown has gone a painstaking effort to classify the thousands of elements that come together to tell our story. Here, she looks to the industry, walking us through how to build a successful hospitality brand. So uh, aesthetic intelligence in a word is taste. Uh, it's not design, it's not beauty. Uh, it's about perception, and it's about a higher level of perception. Um, and aesthetics, if you actually go down to the origins of that word, comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which uh, is a, um, uh, in, in a nutshell, it's about uh, how we perceive the senses. So if you think of a related word like an anesthesiologist, uh, that uh, the job of an anesthesiologist is to numb the senses so we don't feel pain. And with aesthetics, it's about higher sense of feeling. And aesthetic intelligence is the ability not only to to discriminate what what feels good or looks good to you, but to communicate and articulate around that and to recreate it for others. That's the, the power of great taste. Have you always been attuned to aesthetics? I think I was always sensitive to it. I came from a family of um, a lot of creative individuals and very decorative individuals, uh, particularly my uh, my maternal grandmother. She always made things with her hands. I don't think I had any particular talents for it, though. You know, if you would have met me when I was, I don't know, eight or 12, you wouldn't have said, oh, that girl is going to go on to, you know, rule the fashion industry. I, I was sort of a tomboy, if anything. But I think I always had a higher awareness than my peers of, you know, not just how things looked, but but how they felt to me. Um, and that was the first start. And is that is that what sparked you beginning to study aesthetics? And in what capacity did you study it? No, I really came at it um, almost by accident. So I studied business. I, I come from a family that in addition to having some creative um, threads is very practical Uh, I'm actually the first generation American. All four of my grandparents were refugees uh, from Germany um, during the Holocaust. So some classic, you know, uh, Jewish American um, rebuilding, story of rebuilding, and came here with, you know, all the expectation that I would go to the right schools, that I would work very hard, that I would apply myself from a very young age. You know, I I was uh, doing what I could even just to take in a little bit of babysitting money. And I did it, you know, not with any sense that this was, uh, you know, child labor. I did it because it gave me freedom. 
So I went into business in large part because that was one of a few options. It was, you know, business, law, medicine. This is what you did if you're a first-generation American. But I always struggled because I didn't believe in business for business's sake. I always sort of was drawn to creative people. And there was a real kind of demarcation between who I was professionally and who I was personally. So if I looked at the type of people that I would hang with or the type of books that I would read, and then I looked at how I spent my days or how I dressed for work versus how I dressed, you know, for a party, it was really two different me's. And it took a lot of years and a lot of confidence and a lot of, I I guess, experimentation before I could really reconcile those two sides and say that, you know, I, I, I really need to be in environments that are driven by creative people, by people who care about style and beauty and experience and delight. And how do I find businesses that are, you know, fostered, that are really, that are, that are, that that are inspired and in some ways even exist because of those qualities Um, And so, lo and behold, I eventually, and I was already in my early 30s, find my way in the cosmetics industry. You know, and if you think about beauty, the world of, and I I mean beauty products, there's no reason for that business to even exist if it doesn't provide aesthetics. There's no functionality. It's not like anyone's wearing red lipstick because, you know, it makes them healthier or it makes them better at what they do, you know, when they're not wearing red lipstick. But people do it because it elevates them in their sense of being and their, um, you know, their expression. There's all sorts of reasons that mostly women in this case uh, gravitate to beauty products. And so it was a real awakening for me to be in an industry where not only was it a big, a big business and one that was a very healthy business, but one that was really built on the backs of these concepts that I hadn't remotely been taught while I was studying business and while I was doing more practical things. One of your core philosophies uh, is that concepts need a creative brief. Can you explain what that is and how a Mm -hmm. restaurant could utilize it? Mm -hmm. Um, So creative briefs typically start in the consumer goods industry and and in um, creative consumer companies. It could be a a fashion company. It could be a cosmetic company. But it's this, um, it's a conceptual paper that sort of, and it serves as a roadmap. The reality is most great brands don't actually start with a brief. They start with an idea. And the idea is much bigger than anything they're going to sell in year one or year two. So if I give you the example of sort of a Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton uh, didn't start simply with trunks, you know, for traveling. Although that's, if you go back to the earliest days of the brand in the 1860s, that's what you would have seen. But it really started as an innovation for travelers who were going overseas on steamships, because this is the steamship era, and who uh, uh, needed um, not only something that was lighter weight than the, the wood trunks they used before, but that, was, um, that would protect uh, their, their clothing from the elements of the water because they were on a ship for months at a time. And so the, the idea behind Louis Vuitton, whether it was conscious, and I don't think it was by Mr. Vuitton at the time, was about how do I provide products that can answer people's love of adventure and of travel and of discovery. And if you go all the way now to 2020, this love of adventure and discovery and travel is still very much part of the ethos of that company. No matter whether they're selling uh, pants or they're selling watches or they're selling modern luggage. And so I would say with restaurants, the creative brief is sort of an execution strategy around 
um, around the idea, but you really, before you even think about doing a brief, you start by saying, what is the idea and where can we go from there? And if your idea is not original and ownable and relevant and one that'll last beyond the here and now, it probably has to be revisited. Can you walk through some of the individual elements of that brief? Sure. I mean, you start with a brief of, I mean, brief is sort of a, a, a classic marketing document, right? Um, and, it, you know, I know, Josh, you, you, you've read the book. I sort of talk about the fact that, that you know, you've got a, pro, there's a brief around the product. There's a brief, which, what you want with the brief um, is not just that it become a template, but that everybody who is then, um, is then working on various aspects of the, of the execution or the extension can look back to that brief and use it as a sort of standard approach. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of your go-to-market strategy. But I go back to, if I'm a restaurateur, before I even think about the brief, um, I think about, about the idea, about the mood, about what do I want people to feel that is timeless in my place that I can express through all forms of my, whether we call them brand codes or we call them um, execution strategies in the form of a brief. You've worked with restaurants, honing their customer service experience. Can you talk about that? So, um, yes, I was on the board uh, until about half a year ago of Del Frisco's. Um, and Del Frisco's, is, as you may know, has about 70 uh, different um, locations around the country across four different brands. They're not all the Del Frisco brand, though that is the flagship. Um, and what was interesting to me when I joined the board is that um, it had been uh, I had been surrounded by a bunch of guys, and they were all guys. I was the first female who had been in the industry for for many years, and who really, really understood how you operate restaurants, and more specifically, large chains of restaurants. They were deeply operational, and they understood every element of food service, whether it was the highest level or more fast fast service. What they didn't come with, and the reason that this opportunity even opened its way to me, was an understanding of, 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 the, of the customer, and not just the customer when he or she is sitting in that restaurant, but that same customer the other, you know, call it 30 days a month when they're not in the restaurant. And this understanding of how do you create a brand that lives outside of the two hours or so that someone may be dining in my particular space. And, um, and, and so when I think of customer relationship, you know, I don't think so much of, although it's, the, it's a certainly a starting point, it's a very basic metric, but how much did this customer spend last time he or she was there? Um, and what time of the day was that customer here? Or what was the occasion that brought that customer here? What I like to think about, you know, and it's the, to me a, very, a much more powerful um, platform for de delivering service is who is this person? What are their dreams? What were they hoping when they came here that they would feel or that the people that they had uh, brought with them would feel? Um, I, I turn it into less of a sort of functional definition of who they are at what moment, what age, what income, and more into a mood state. Because at the end of the day, we know most people going to restaurants, in fact, almost 100%, are not going simply to nourish themselves. If they were simply going to nourish themselves to fill their stomachs with food and drink, there's a lot of cheaper, easier, faster ways to do it. 
but they're going to accomplish something that is more profound. And if it, 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 it could be a professionally, a, a professionally uh, oriented uh, objective, it could be, you know, a romantically oriented one. And the same person, by the way, may come back two times a month for each of those agendas. But, the, the, but, but unless you have the empathy as a restaurateur to understand the person in his or her entirety, I think you really reduce them to something that becomes much more transactional and much more forgettable. And that's the problem with a lot of restaurants today. It's not that they don't serve well. It's not that the food's not good. The design's not good. It's very good. It's that it's not memorable. And, um, and, and you know, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about this halo effect, which is important in a lot of businesses. It's really important in food service and restaurants. And the halo effect is essentially this idea that about half of the joy that people take from an experience is not just the experience that they had when they came into the, uh, you know, the, 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 the four walls of that restaurant, in the case of a restaurant industry, it's the experience that this combination of the anticipation, I'm really excited to try out this place, I'm going there next week, and, and the combination of the anticipation and the memory I had such a good night at that restaurant and, and, and the way they talk about it, the way they remember it. And very, very few places, uh, fine dining and otherwise, really think about this combination of anticipation and memory. But if you can get those things working in your favor, you've got a lot more resonance than simply worrying about what happens when a person actually comes in and the person actually leaves. Well, one of the other things I took away from the book that I thought was so important to discuss on the show is that aesthetic improvements don't necessarily need to be expensive. Mm. Right. Well, people, you know, often assume that it's a trade-off. So if I'm going to invest more in the lighting, then I have less to invest in the food, for example. And I say, okay, sometimes that's true. So if you're opening a new restaurant and you're going to hire the likes of a Kelly Wurstler or Peter Maruno, you know, who don't do projects for much less than 10 million, of course it costs a lot. But let's just, let's just take a step back because even if you're not hiring any designer, you just say, I just want a fresh coat of paint on the wall. You're making a decision and you're making a, an aesthetic decision that will have an impact on the, your patrons. And I always start by saying, let's just break down what are the decisions you're making anyway? I mean, you're going to put, if you're starting a new restaurant, you're going to put tile on the floor. You're going to put a, a lighting fixture somewhere in that restaurant. You're going to hire an electrician. And it's not going to cost you more necessarily to move the speaker from one area to another. It's not going to cost you more to do um, maybe a soft copper on the wall as opposed to a, um, um, a, a, a sheer sallow green. I mean, who knows? There's a lot of decisions. And at a minimum, at a minimum, what anyone who's in the business of making people feel good, and I would argue that 90% of businesses should be focused on making people feel good or feeling a way that they want to feel, start with the things you're already doing and just do them more mindfully, do them thoughtfully, really understand and appreciate that every one of those decisions does have an impact on how people feel, whether they register it or not. And if you can get even a small combination of those decisions right and 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 thoughtful you 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 will you will win you know at goodwill in spades now if assuming you've done all the basic things you've 
picked your, your coat of paint or your tile or your textures on the floor, the upholstery, you've picked it and within at every price category, at every price segment, you have thousands of options. So it, it, it's a bit of a cop-out to think that because I don't have the money, I can't do something nice. There's something nice at every price point. It just has to be thoughtful. It has to come together. And there's another concept I talk about in the book, which is about curation. So it's not just about making individual, individual decisions. So, for example, there, there are palettes, color palettes that I love, but they are not the color palette I would put in combination with other decisions that I'm making for what I want to achieve. And so being mindful about how all of these decisions come together and then being able to edit down. Sometimes the best decisions you make are the decisions to do nothing and to take things away. If you have money, you will probably have the luxury to do some things better than others. There are lighting fixtures that are very expensive. But, you know, I go back to, in the fragrance world, the Joe Malone example. So when I was at Estee Lauder, we acquired Joe Malone. Joe Malone was a very, very small company. She had, uh, she's a perfumer in London, had one small shop, and was just opening at Bergdorf in New York. And we knew, even though we were a big company and Joe was a small company, that there was a lot of buzz around that, that she was doing something right. And she had no resources. She had no backers. There was no private equity investment back in the day. She couldn't have afforded to mold her, her bottle of her fragrances in a way that felt different and special. But there was something about her concept of fragrances that felt very special. And what, what she ended up doing is she bought stock bottles because one of the most expensive uh, elements of launching a, a new fragrance brand is getting a, a, a mold so that you can individualize the glass bottles. That's a very, very expensive process. You know, the likes of a Tom Ford will spend a million dollars just for the mold. She couldn't have afforded that. But what she could do was come up with other concepts around the brand that made it feel giftable. So she put bows on everything. She had a color scheme that was quite unusual for the category. Um, she created a store design that felt more like a lifestyle. It didn't feel like just another fragrance aisle of a department store, which everyone else did. So there's a lot of things you can do by being resourceful. And sometimes I think having more money can be a disadvantage because people get lazy and they have a lot of money. They start following the, uh, you know, the formula of others that have a lot of money. When you don't have a lot of money, you have to think originally. And that's often the best, the best stuff that comes out when people are thinking originally. Can you think of hospitality concepts and offer examples of uh, people you think got it right? Who has aesthetic intelligence within the industry? An interesting case study in hospitality is when Airbnb launched. So Airbnb was not the first company or the first venture to offer uh, short-term rentals, home rentals. Uh, 20 years before Airbnb was even launched, you had Craigslist. If somebody stayed at a place on Craigslist, it was probably because they had no other choice financially. It really was the lowest cost option, and it kind of felt creepy and dangerous, but you did it because you absolutely had to. And then after Craigslist, years later, you had VRBO and HomeAway and a few others, and then Airbnb comes. And Airbnb, to this day, notwithstanding all that's happening in the world and the hit that it's having on hospitality is still um, valued at multiples of any of these others. And you say, say, what did they do differently? Well, you know, they, they didn't have a different functionality 
in terms of the others, and they were leveraging the net the same way and information the same way many of the others were. But the two, the two guys who founded Airbnb, one is Joe Gebbia, the other, Grancheski, unlike all the others, they were not technologists. They each had uh, graduated from Rhode Island School of Design, and they started it with in mind, how do we sort of how do we use design as a source for as a source of comfort and trust and, and aspiration? And I think they were very were very very um, strategic and clever in how they used their design backgrounds to create a proposition via this very limited sensorial out, you know channel, which is the web, to make people dream about travel and about experience in a way that um, you know had not happened before and really reinvented what it means to travel to the point where people will stay at an Airbnb sometimes before they'd stay at a Ritz-Carlton or a Mandarin Oriental. So they went all the way up the chain with that particular design sensibility. Now, if if your question is how do we do it in the offline world, you know, I I would say one of the things, you know, going back to my Del Fristigo's example, is a lot of people who do restaurants well are very operational. And they, there's a lot of elements. It's not an easy business. Um, and they, they reduce it to sort of the mechanics of what they're doing. And then of the more, I would say, tasteful ones in the mix, maybe they'll hire a great designer and be very mindful about, for example, the decor, the napkins, and so forth. If you want to take that to another level, though, when I go to a place that not only has good visual de- de- design, that would, you know, show well on the likes of an Instagram, but that has great sound design. Like, why, why, why is there not more sophistication in sound design? And by sound design, I don't just mean the selection of music um, or how loud the volume is or soft it is, but I mean how the music is, 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 is being projected because the technology around projecting sound has gotten so much more advanced and is so much cheaper today than it was a few years ago. And yet very few restaurants are, are leveraging it well. Similarly, um, lighting. So I don't just, you know, lighting, we think of, well, buying great fixtures. And that helps, obviously. But what about actually the bulbs? Because it's not that much more expensive to change the temperature of a bulb, to have it be a bit warmer or a bit pinker or a bit, or even in different sections. And to be aware when you have the different colors in your, in, in your various spaces, how the temperature of that light reflects off of it because at the end of the day that is driving experience whether the, the the customer realizes it or not and the more you can tap into all of these unconscious elements of design i call it invisible design the more of an advantage you have and the more apt people are to come back not just to try it once and to say it was good but to come back and to say it was great are there pitfalls you would recommend restaurateurs avoiding? You can't teach kindness. And at the end of the day, it's like a fundamental part of hospitality is a mindset that not only am I equipped to serve well, but I actually enjoy serving. And I'm often struck that I go to restaurants and people, you know, the, the meaning that whether it's the maitre d' or the waitresses, they're very skilled and they go through, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the protocol well, but there isn't a sense that they actually enjoy what they do. And then it creates a bit of a distance and a transactional connection with me because if they're just 
you know, doing their job so that they can actually get on with their life and do other things, then I sort of feel like, well, you know, it's, it's a conscious, a conscious or unconscious reminder that, that, that I'm really there just because I'm able to pay and they're really there just because they need the pay. And it reduces that, that equation to something very dehumanizing. And the reason I bring this up is no matter what's happening in the world in terms of, um, you know, trend and development and, and macroeconomic uh, factors and so forth, the one thing that never goes away, the one thing that never goes away is the need for people to find, uh, find ways to, sort of, to, 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 to touch their humanity, to feel, you know, we, we, we disguise it in the form of community, we disguise it in the form of, of, of um, sort of connection or experience, but really what, what we're getting at is people want to feel, they want to feel human, they want to be treated like a human, and, um, and at the end of the day, we go through a lot of our life being dehumanized. And um, so I would say, you know, the, uh, you know, at the start, it's really about hiring well, hiring people not who are willing to do the work, but who actually derive genuine joy from it because their joy will be my joy. And so I think anything you can do to make those people feel that they're part of something that's bigger than a job will pay off in spades. That's Pauline Brown, author of Aesthetic Intelligence. You can pick up her book in hard copy or digital format on Amazon.com. Also, be sure to check out her radio shows, Trendsetters and Tastemakers, both on Sirius Satellite Radio. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.